1: Hello, and welcome to American Muslim Project. I'm Assad Butt. American Muslim Project is a podcast where we share the contributions Muslims are making to American life. In each episode, we elevate unique Muslim voices that are shaping this American experience. My guest today is Qasim Rashid. Qasim is a Pakistani born American author, politician, lawyer, and human rights activist. Last year, Qasim was the Democratic nominee for Virginia's first congressional district, but lost the election to the Republican incumbent. Qasim has written several books, including The Wrong Kind of Muslim, which talks about the treatment of Ahmadi Muslims and other minority faiths in Pakistan. Qasim recently released his first children's book called Hana and the Ramadan Gift. We started our conversation talking about how his Ramadan was this year.
2: Uh, well, Asad, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, this Ramadan was an interesting Ramadan for a number of reasons. I mean, it's always rewarding to have uh, this month, right? Because you don't know if you're going to get the opportunity next year. Um, God knows when our time comes, but. Um, It was rewarding in that I got to spend time with family, got to focus on my personal improvement and prayer, you know, got to spend time serving my community, engaged in charity. It's one of the big driving focuses of Ramadan. Um, Had a lot of fun launching my my debut children's book. Um, But, you know, likewise, it's also bittersweet and painful, right? We see what's happening to the Uyghur Muslims, uh, to um, in, in Palestine right now, as we record this, And and certainly, you know, the rising level of anti Asian hate crimes here in the United States. So, you you, at least I took this Ramazan as an opportunity to not only reflect on my spiritual condition, how that can improve, but also what I can or should be doing to just be a better uh, advocate and servant of just uplifting humanity and making sure we really are fighting for justice.
1: Yeah. How how is this year different than, say, last year um, or maybe years past when we weren't in COVID?
2: Well, I mean, this is the second year in a row in COVID, right? Yeah, right. And um, I think last year was kind of a shock to the system. Um, this year, Alhamdulillah, I'm, I'm, you know, everyone in my family and I was vaccinated, double vaccinated, so uh, oh, that's, that's a huge relief. But still frustrating that we can't be at the masjid, we can't really experience Ramadan as it was meant to be experienced. Hopefully, next year will be back to normal. Uh, Everything I'm hearing indicates that, you know, provided we make sure people keep getting vaccinated. So it's been a surreal experience. Um, The silver lining is I've gotten to spend a lot more time with my kids than I normally would have otherwise. And I I know they appreciate that too. It's it's good to have them around and good to be around them. Uh, But I really do want to be able to be at the masjid and and see, you know, my friends and, and, you know, I know my kids miss all their friends. And I know they miss going and and having that social interaction. So hopefully we can revitalize that
1: next year. Yeah, I mean, I think for me as well, Ramadan is is one of the main times where I get to see a lot of friends and family that I don't usually see during the course of the year. And I feel like the last couple of years have been really, Really hard with that, and um, it's definitely something that we're looking forward to um, in in future years. Can can you tell me, maybe just for people who are joining the podcast that aren't Muslim, you know, what are your nights like when you go out and meet people and 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 have iftar in uh, in a pre and post COVID world?
2: I mean, this is really one of the exciting parts about Ramadan, right? I mean, the the fasting is obviously what everyone hears about, but the the broader perspective is the ability to you know spend your evenings with friends um, that you normally don't see otherwise it's a really a beautiful opportunity to rekindle relationships um, to strengthen uh, bridges that may have you know kind of faltered uh, and to eat some really amazing food, amazing so, food yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's more difficult now as, as a family man but especially when I was single I mean we would try to find a new spot every night and then there's of course the famous you know IHOP Saturdays, you know, of at, showing up at IHOP at three in the morning, 40 brown guys show up and they're like, what is going on here? What are you guys doing here? Right,
1: right, right. <laughs> um, sure. So
2: that's always fun too. And, you know, I think that's where a lot of those memories are made and a lot of those friendships are built.
1: Yeah. Can you tell me about the book that you just released? So um, Hannah, Hanna, uh, let me pronounce it right. Cause I, I actually listened to your reading of it, Hannah and the Ramadan gift. Can you tell me a little bit about the children's book? Yeah,
2: this was a project 13 years in the making. It's a children's book, a debut children's book for children, four to eight, that follows the story of Hannah named after my own daughter. And it kind of ignited my mind when my wife and I were expecting our first child, you know, about 13 years ago, I realized there's almost nothing out there, at least at that time, there wasn't uh, from a children's book perspective on Ramadan. So I thought, let me write a book. And I got rejected about two dozen times and uh, was told there's no market for it. And since then, there have been some great books published by some great authors on this kind of a subject. Um, I found a great team, a great you know book agent, a uh, great team at uh, Penguin Publishing <clears throat> who believed in the project. And um, the story basically is about a young girl who wants to fast but her grandfather tells her that while she's too young to fast, she can still observe Ramadan by serving humanity. And so then she just goes through these lessons and struggles of, you know, serving humanity sounds great in principle, but it actually is a lot of work, but it's a necessary responsibility that each person has within their capacity. A lot of folks think I wrote the book exclusively for Muslim children. And I try to point out that while that was absolutely a part of it, I want Muslim kids to see themselves reflected in literature. I also want, non-Muslim kids to read this the same way I read, you know, as a child books about Christmas and Hanukkah. I want, you know, Christian and Jewish and, and Hindu and Sikh kids to read this book and have Islam and Muslims and Ramadan normalized, have, yeah. you know, let them feel more acquainted with this so that, uh, one, it's not something seen as foreign or bizarre. And, and two, if, And probably when at some point in their life, when somebody says something Islamophobic or or bigoted, they can speak from a position of experience and say, hey, that's wrong. And here's why I know that's
1: wrong. Yeah. My wife, who is uh, not Muslim, has said this year more than in past years, she's really seen uh, a lot more people talking about Ramadan and Eid online or, you know, in the news. So I feel like this normalization is happening. Do do you also see that?
2: Well, yeah, I mean... uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that that from her. I mean, I think her perspective is important as somebody kind of outside the bubble that we're in, right? In right. one respect. But obviously, someone who's very attuned to it uh, by virtue of being married to a Muslim. You know, I, I think we've made progress, but I still think, I, I hesitate to say we've, you know, really gotten to where we need to go. I think there's still a long way to go yet. You know, and, and I think one of the examples of, of how far we have to go is there are still no consequences, None. For a politician or a, a celebrity to say something Islamophobic or, or anti-Muslim, um, yeah. there's, there's no consequences for it. They're, they can just get out and, you know, I mean, the president, former president literally ran on a Muslim ban and, you know, every single uh, Republican got on board with him and it was no big deal. So um, I, I think that on the individual level, I'm certainly seeing progress, but I, I can tell you as somebody who's ran for office the last two years in a row, when my opponents realized that I was a serious threat their default was trying to tie me to Islamic terrorism and, you know, other nonsense like that, because they had no actual ideas to run on and they didn't suffer any consequences from folks within their, with actually not only within their own party, but even some on the left didn't really care. So <laughs> I feel like we used to have a lot more work to do.
1: Yeah, sure. So, so can we talk more about this? That You you ran for office and your opponents, when they found out that you were a Muslim, called you a terrorist. Is that right?
2: Well, they were a little bit more slick. Uh, they, they, you know, for example, I, I tweeted out a couple of years ago that uh, something about the KKK, um, and somebody said that, uh, well, these are Christian terrorists, and I said, no, there's no such thing as Christian terrorism. There's no such thing as Islamic terrorism. There is only terrorism. Terrorism has no religion. Yeah. And so they took out. They literally took part of my tweet to say. Um, In response to you know like pictures of isis and other types of you know you know terrorist organizations and took my excerpt to indicate that i don't consider that terrorism you know because i said there's no islamic so i mean really conniving and really vicious types of stuff and then you know tying me to words like radical and extremism and you know notwithstanding that you know not only is it the furthest from the truth but these kinds of groups you know actually send me death threats because i'm an amity muslim and so there's an opportunity i believe uh, in america For us to continue to have that conversation and make sure more folks are aware of who we are and what we stand for. And the fact that Muslims are as American as apple pie. Uh, You know, 15 to 30 percent of the Africans enslaved were Muslim. Uh, African Muslims literally built this nation uh, from the ground up. And uh, every single war that the United States has ever fought in, going back to the Revolutionary War, American Muslims Fought in defense of this country. So, you know, those are the narratives that I think, you know, we need to be more deliberate about, about our integration and how we've really helped build this country. And I think until we can be seen as, as American as any other person, um, not for our own validation, but I think for what this country is supposed to be that more perfect union, I think we need to keep pushing forward.
1: Yeah, I feel like you gave us so much right there to un- unpack <laughs> and talk <laughs> about. Um, you're, as you mentioned, you're an uh, um, Ahmadi Muslim. Can you tell me why why that is controversial? It or for other Muslims?
2: Sure, sure. I mean, there. I, I can give you the practical argument and, and, the, and the brief theological argument. The the brief theological is, is that Muslims of all stripes are waiting for this latter day Messiah to come. Um, and and the majority of the orthodoxy believe that Jesus, uh, son of Mary, Jesus Christ, um, physically ascended to heaven, and that he'll physically descend from heaven and, you know, wage some sort of holy war, depending on who you talk to, it varies. I don't want to sound dismissive, but I'm just trying to be brief. Wage some kind of war, and then he'll hasten the victory of Islam. Our belief as Amity Muslims is that Jesus Christ was a prophet who died a natural death. Um, He was a prophet sent to the children of Israel, to the Jews. He fulfilled his mission as the Messiah and he died a natural death at an old age and that he will not physically return uh, because once you die, you don't come back to life. Uh, we believe this based on the Quran and the Hadith and the, and the Sunnah. However, we, we believe that there will be a Latter-day Messiah who will come to revive faith, reunite people with with peace and compassion and, and logic um, and that uh, he will follow in the footsteps of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And we believe that that person uh, that Messiah who was foretold, who was awaited, is Mirza Ghulam Ahmad. And so our community was established on this principle of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that this Messiah will come to revive faith, to uh, not bring anything new or add anything, because the Quran is perfect, Islam is perfect, it's a final religion, but he will revive faith and, and reunite Muslims with peace and compassion and love. And so uh, theologically, that's where the difference is. It's, it's not even a question of whether a Messiah will come, it's just a question of who. Um, the orthodoxy believes that Jesus has been alive in heaven for the last 2,000 years and he'll physically descend. And we say, no, that doesn't make any actual sense. He's died a natural death. This Messiah that's to come will be a Muslim raised to the status of Messiah. And, and so that's the theological difference. The, 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 what's practically happened is that we've been resolute since day one that there's no permission for any kind of religious compulsion or violence, none whatsoever. We are happy to have a debate and dialogue about our beliefs and have an open discussion about it. The orthodoxy in countries like Pakistan and much of the Arab world has unfortunately resorted to violence, Uh, uh, societal violence, state-sanctioned violence. In Pakistan, for example, they've passed actual laws criminalizing our very existence, up to and including the death penalty, um, for simply uh, affirming ourselves as Muslims. And uh, as a result, all of our books are banned. Our uh, websites are banned. Um, Our masjids are torn down. And raised. Um, the Taliban has openly and brazenly mass murdered us, and there's been no response or consequence. Uh, on the contrary, we are denied Hajj, denied the right to vote, denied the right to hold political office, and, and there's no actual remedy because even the Supreme Court has upheld the state-sanctioned persecution. Yeah. Um, and so as a result of that, I, I'm kind of in a unique position where, unfortunately, I get, I get kind of hate from all around, but You know, even today, the head of our community, whom we refer to as the Khalifa, uh, Hazrat Mirza Masrur Ahmed, pointed out that despite this persecution from Muslims, our responsibility is never to wish ill upon any Muslim, indeed any person. Our responsibility is to continue to serve humanity as Islam requires us to and continue to pray and lead by example. This is because this is exactly what the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, did and that's whose example we are obliged to follow. So no matter what, we're going to continue to follow this path of justice and compassion, and uh, and we hope that over time uh, our, our actions are seen, our prayers are heard, and we can bring about that true reformation based on justice and compassion, not based on any kind of force or compulsion.
1: It's akin to what happened to uh, Protestants in Catholicism. Is that right?
2: I mean, there's certainly similarities uh, across any religion, right? I mean, when You know, let's just go back to when when Jesus Christ claimed to be the Messiah, he was rejected by the leading Jewish authorities of his time as well. When, you know, Abraham claimed to be a prophet, he was rejected by his people. When the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, claimed to be a prophet, he was vehemently rejected by his very own people. And this is just kind of the history of humanity that when God sends um, reformation, the person that he sends never resorts to any kind of violence, ever. Because they don't need to, but the people who oppose him uh, do, because they realize that this person is a threat to their power, a threat to their authority.
1: Yeah.
2: And, uh, and so that's just been the history of humanity, and inevitably, every single situation, whether you're talking about Prophet Abraham, or Moses, or Jesus, or Prophet Muhammad, um, the message brought by these righteous and noble men, won. one, Because it wasn't based on force or power. It was based on truth and justice. And and that ultimately wins hearts and minds.
1: We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, you'll find out just how many times Qasim was pulled over by police post 9-11. The answer will surprise you.
3: This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy.
1: Welcome back to American Muslim Project. My guest today is Qasem Rashid. Last year, when he ran for political office, his campaign slogan was compassion through action. That also happens to be a major theme in his newly released children's book, Hana and the Ramadan Gift.
2: And, and I should add that you know, even during the campaign, we our compassion through action initiative, and this was especially relevant last year when the pandemic was coming on the scene, was to provide um, food, water, face masks. Uh, and support to hospitals, local shelters, and communities. I think we gave away something like two or three thousand face masks. Um, we we helped feed uh, I don't know how many people. Um, and, and these were these were not people that we you know vetted that are you voting for me or not. These were just folks who needed help. And we we made no indication that this was part of the campaign when we were working with them. Uh, we certainly used the campaign to say, hey, here's work we're doing. If you need help, reach out to us. But when someone reached out. There was you know no absolutely complete restriction on asking anything about politics it was purely what do you need and how can we help you and and I think that's really one of the themes that we talk about in the book as well there's a, a moment where Hannah and her grandfather are donating clothes to a, a shelter and she objects that but these people won't know that we're the ones who give the clothes and her grandfather points out that that's irrelevant because the true service of humanity is to Serve people out of pure love, not because you're expecting any kind of reward.
1: That's a very, very powerful message. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the artwork.
2: Yes, yes. So, Hana and the Ramadan gift was um, illustrated by an amazing young artist named Alia Jalil. She's a young woman in uh, Texas extraordinarily talented. And she really just brought the pictures to life, the the text to life, I'm sorry, with her pictures, her vibrant colors. We had a lot of fun putting it together. I think she really captured what we were envisioning really well. And one of my favorite moments was when um, last year, when I first saw the covers, I think probably last summer at some point, my daughter, who was then only four, saw the book cover and just her jaw drops, her eyes get big. And she goes, Abu, it's me. Look, it's me. Um, yeah. I mean, so when you talk about your children seeing themselves, I mean, this was literally her seeing herself yeah. and uh, just a really rewarding experience and, and really captures what we were trying to accomplish.
1: Yeah. I think you and I probably were around the same age and we, yeah, we just didn't have that growing up, especially here in the States, right? Yeah. Yeah. At all. Going back to, to your story, you are an immigrant from Pakistan and you came to the States in the late eighties. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. Um, and you actually lived in in Section 8 housing growing up on food stamps, and you've been working since you were a teen. Can you tell me about what that was like as a as a, a Muslim immigrant, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s? You know,
2: I, I always grew up uh, thinking that when we would have, you know, you probably remember like in high school or in elementary school, middle school, you'd have these you know, motivational speakers come in or you'd have these, you know, wise old sages come in and they would talk about how difficult life was for them back then and how much easier life is now and so on and so forth. And so I always assumed that growing up, I'd say the same thing to, to my kids or the younger generation. But I, I got to tell you, I think life was easier for us in the 80s and 90s than it is now. Um, Why do you say that? For kids, for kids now. Uh, a number of things, right? I mean, I think that with the advancement of the internet, there's a lot more things that we need to be careful about, cautious about. Children have a lot easier access to people they shouldn't, Uh, you know, unsavory aspects of life are a lot more accessible than they were, I think, back then. Um, and, and I want to be careful not to compare scars or to say that, you know, we had it easy back then. I think saying easier and easier, two very different things. Cause I can tell you, I mean, you know, as somebody who lived in section eight housing and was on food stamps, I obviously in, in working since I was 15, I can tell you there were absolutely struggles, but that's just what we had to do. And, and I got to, you know, I was talking to my wife about this just a couple of days ago, actually, that I, I look at all the advantages, you know, our kids have now that we didn't have back then. Um, economic advantages, uh, in particular, and you know, when you're a kid and you don't have something, you don't necessarily realize right. it until later on, right? Like I, like I knew growing up, yeah, we're in at housing, we're on food stamps, okay. And now as I get older, I'm like, man, that we were living below the poverty line—that wasn't good. And at the time, I remember thinking, like, you know, why is there so much disparity? But not really having enough of a context, I guess, to really understand. Economic disparity, as, as I grew older and kind of began to understand the way the world works and and had the good fortune of having really, really amazing and remarkable teachers and mentors, then not only did I begin to understand why we are where we are, but then more importantly, how we can truly ensure more justice, go, you know, going forward. And then also for for American Muslims, right? Living in a pre-9-11 America versus post-9-11 America. Oh, yeah.
1: Of course. Yeah. Two, Big two difference.
2: Two different worlds, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I, my friends still joke with me about this, how in the two years after 9-11, I was pulled over by law enforcement over 70 times without getting a ticket. Without I'm getting, sorry, wait, 70,
1: 70 times? Over
2: 70 times without getting a ticket. I mean, you have to remember, I was 19 when 9-11 happened. So, you know, a brown and I and I've I, I had a beard my entire adult life. So, imagine, you know, a brown bearded 19-year-old driving around. It was, you know, not very difficult to, you know, racially profile. And, and, and where, where mm-hmm. was this? This is Northern Illinois. This is the Chicagoland area. So by no wow. means like some red bastion, right? This is a very, you know, I mean, Illinois has gone 80% Democrat. I don't know how many uh, election cycles in a row. Um, so that that was a post-9-11 reality. But again, I, I, I share all this for context, not for sympathy or woe unto me, because I, I think that when you have context, then you can work more effectively to, uh, I keep saying this, but, be, you know, help our nation become that more perfect union that it's supposed to yeah. be.
3: You
1: are, in addition to being an author and, and a politician, you are also a human rights lawyer. Can, we, can you tell me about that work?
2: So I, I owe that to my, my wife, Aisha. You know, when we first got married, I was working in the education sector and I enjoyed it, uh, but it was not where I wanted to be long term. Um, it was still too much of a business environment for me. I had initially thought about going to grad school for an MBA, wrote my essays, did uh, they make you right? My wife read them and said, these are trash. What are you doing? This is not where you want to be. <laughs> and and she she actually convinced me to go to law school and, and look into human rights law because she, I guess, saw something in me better than I saw something in myself. And she was right. And, and in law school, I got uh, hooked. I mean, started working with a nonprofit, the Virginia Poverty Law Center, their Office of Domestic and Sexual Violence, started working with some other nonprofits on uh, on a variety of issues, I was a prison chaplain for four years. Um, just to kind of mentor incarcerated people and and help with, you know, rehabilitation and reform. And um, after law school, got into corporate law uh, because that's just kind of where my business experience had been. And and again, I don't want to, you know, dunk on corporate law as like some evil entity. I I think if it worked for you, great. Uh, It worked for me for a couple of years until I quickly realized this is not where I want to be in 40 years, worrying about stock prices and, you know, fine print and stuff like that. That's just not a deathbed question for me. And so I had an opportunity uh, after about three or four years in corporate law to go full-time uh, into human rights law. And I, I took an offer at a women's rights organization uh, as their director of civil rights and policy. And I've never looked back. And um, and so now I, I, you know, I still do a lot of pro bono work. A lot is relative. I could always do more, but I still do pro bono work supporting survivors of domestic and sexual violence. Um, but, a lot of my work focuses on working with nonprofits, working with small businesses, um, working on comms and media strategy, and then you know working with you know refugees and, and immigrant issues. That's where my passion has been for a long time, and and that's really where my advocacy is going to remain.
1: You are uh, quite prominent on uh, Twitter and active on on Twitter. I think that's how I first got to know you. Um, and I also I, I think this ties into you also had a TED talk recently about the power of collateral education. I was wondering if you could share. Uh, the subject of that uh, a collateral education, um, the, the Twitter kind of feud that you had.
2: Yeah, the basic premise is that um, I got tired of simply ignoring the trolls and letting them run unabated uh, without being challenged, but I also didn't want to waste my time engaging them. And this finally kind of occurred to me through kind of series of trials and error that if the person I'm engaging with isn't willing to learn, um, then maybe there's an opportunity for me to educate those for observing and watching. Well,
1: uh, can you you share what were the trolls saying?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it'd be be anything from, I mean, I think one of the the, the most prominent early examples was a white supremacist DM me and said, uh, something about Muslims are terrorists. Um, Can you give me an example of when Christians committed terrorism? I'll wait. And so I responded with like a six-page long list. Of you know uh, you know the KKK and Lords versus Army, um, and the Hutari Christian militia. Uh, I mean, just list went on and on and on, right? Uh, the Eastern Lightning, and um, and I ended it by saying that I know these people don't re- represent Christianity because I've studied Christianity from actual Christian scholars. Uh, Muslims simply ask you to study Islam from actual Muslim scholars, not from you know some Google scholar imbecile on the internet. I screenshotted our conversation and posted it and it went viral. They got like 70,000 retweets and got, you know, like 10 media outlets picked it up. And And for me, the most overwhelming thing wasn't the fact that the person changed his mind. He didn't, he dug down and continued to just send me abusive rhetoric. But I literally had thousands of people reach out to me and say, wow, you know, I, I've gotten that kind of a question. I don't know how to respond to it. Or I had those kinds of concerns and I didn't know what to do about it. Or I actually believe that's that guy. But now I realize how mistaken I was. Thank you. This is the kind of knowledge we need and and again i hope i don't sound like i'm self-aggrandizing because the information was pretty much basic information but we just haven't really i don't think done an effective enough job of communicating that and and i want to be careful because i don't want to make it sound like i'm again dunking on muslims for not doing enough i'm just pointing out the reality that when we're facing Systemic misinformation um, we need to be at the forefront of countering that misinformation whether we like it or not right yeah uh, that's just the reality the, you know either we tell our story or somebody tells it for us and I'd rather we tell our story
1: yeah I, I think the what I took away from it is that trying to change these people on Twitter their minds uh, to me it seems impossible but I guess what I got from it was you got to engage because you never know who that Conversation might affect otherwise outside of the one person that you're talking
2: to. That's exactly right. I mean, that's exactly right. That it's really not even about. That's the irony of this whole dialogue approach. That it's not even about dialoguing with that one person, but it's with recognizing that there are people watching and observing, and um, and it's through that methodology, that collateral education essentially that you can help win hearts and minds, and um, and if nothing else, if nothing else, inoculate people. With knowledge, so that next time they come across that kind of ignorance and bigotry, they can be effective themselves in in into in disarming it and uh, neutralizing it. For as, as critical as I have been of the Islamophobia and racism, I do have immense uh, hope uh, because I get so many messages of positivity and love and compassion from yeah. my fellow Americans of all faiths and backgrounds—Christian, Jewish, atheist, uh, Hindu, Sikh—you name it—and and that. Is far more overwhelming than the death threats and the nastiness, and and I think especially as I look at the younger generation, I see a lot more hope. Um, and I don't just say that as a, you know, cliche. The children are our future. Um, I say that because I, I'm seeing the tangible progress being made, and um, and that gives me hope.
1: Kassim Rashid, I think we'll we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining American Muslim Project. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Ah, it's been my privilege, man. Thank you. My Conversation with Qasem Rashid was recorded in May of 2021. We'll have links to everything that we talked about, including all of his books, in our show notes. Just a quick note, if you haven't already, we'd love for you to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts, or better yet, share this episode with a friend. Thanks for listening. American Muslim Project is a production of Refileon Media. Today's show was produced by Lindsay Gamble, Mark Inado, and me, Asad Butt. Simon Hutchinson did our theme. You can find out more at AmericanMuslimProject.com.